Well, good evening or good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are watching this and happy feast of Blessed Basil Moreau to our Holy Cross brothers and sisters throughout the world. I'm happy to welcome you to this webinar on Eucharist, the Eucharist and social justice. Despite what the name tag says, I am not Father Michael Dis uh, Driscoll. My name is Karen Eifler, and I serve as the director of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture at the University of Portland. One of our favorite verbs in the Garaventa Center is collaborate, and we are delighted to benefit from the generosity of our theology colleague, Professor Michael Prendergast, in sharing his friend and growing up in Montana neighbor, Father Michael Driscoll, with us and with all of you. It's a very small world most of the time. Father Driscoll is a priest of the Diocese of Helena, Montana, and an accomplished teacher and scholar who has shed light on walking the talk of Eucharistic justice, of becoming what we consume, of liturgy that illuminates the path to wholeness and justice in France, Italy, Israel, and cities throughout the United States, as well as in a distinguished teaching career at UP's sister school, Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. To that long list of appreciative audiences, I'm so happy to welcome, I'm, I'm so welcome, I'm so happy to add Portland, Oregon. Before Father Driscoll takes the camera, just a couple of logistical notes. We will not be monitoring the chat during Father Driscoll's talk, but we'll be happy to take questions. And to do that, you can use the QA button at the bottom of your screen, and we'll attend to those at the end of Father Driscoll's talk. And if you decide that you'd like to review this talk at your own pace later, I assure you that a recording will be available on the Garavana Center website in a couple of days. I'm ready to turn things over to Father Michael Driscoll now. Welcome. Karen, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and delighted to talk to you about, I think, an important topic, and that is uh, Eucharist and social justice. And the subtitle is How the Liturgy Schools Us for Action. That's a line actually out of one of Benedict XVI's uh, uh, writings. But I love this idea that the Eucharist schools us, it forms us, and it reforms us for action. So let's just jump right into it. Hold on here. Here we go. Good. So not only is it Blessed Basil Moreau Day, but this past week we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And in a 1967 Christmas sermon on peace and nonviolence, he spoke about finding interrelatedness. And he uses the word religion in its primary sense of re is to again, and legios' connection is to find the connection again. And it seems that's what we're about this evening, trying to find the connection between liturgy and life, between Eucharist and ethics. And so uh, we'll move on there. The genesis for this talk actually came out of a book that was edited by Doris Donnelly from John Carroll University in, uh, in uh, uh, Cleveland. She uh, asked several liturgists and sacramental theologians to take one of the sacraments and to try to suss out, tease out the relationship of that sacrament with justice. So I jumped on the, on the, um, on the, the project and I asked if I could do the chapter on Eucharist. Since that's one of the courses I was teaching, I've taught for many, many years at the, at the, uh, at the University of Notre Dame. She gave us kind of a template to follow. She said, before you jump into theology, she said, I'd want you to find some kind of a, a, a story to tell, some kind of an anecdote that will shed light. And so that's exactly what I did. And uh, so what I'd like to, how, how I'd like to organize this is the first part will be the current voice looking at this story. It's called Mass at the Border. And then I'd like to look at a couple of patristic voices, namely John Chrysostom and St. Augustine, and then the voices of the last three popes. 
What I'm trying to do is tease out here the relationship of liturgy, not only to doctrine, but also to ethics. And liturgists, you have to love to use this tag, lex orandi, lex credendi, which means the rule of prayer leads to the, it shapes the way we believe, but also lex orandi leads to, leads to lex vivendi, meaning that the way we pray also shapes us for action. And so this evening, we're going to focus primarily on the liturgical and the ethical dimensions. So if prayer, the lex orandi, shapes belief, lex credendi, then together they find their true authentication in genuine Christian living, so lex vivendi. And so to ignore this interconnection between Eucharist and life is to ignore the bond between the life and the mission of the church. So these three are integrated, but for the sake of, uh, of presentation, we're going to talk about them as two separate areas of, of liturgy and, and ethics. The story I wanted to tell, I would like to show in a film, but I think our time is limited, but it's a, uh, uh, a DVD that was produced and directed by one of my colleagues, uh, Daniel Grudy, Holy Cross priest, uh, who teaches with me at Notre Dame. And uh, it, it, was, it was initially a DVD, but now you can get access to it on uh, his website, and it's on Vimeo. And I'm going to put this up at the very end so that you can copy the number if you want. But it's vimeo.com forward slash 238-78925. And you can see this very remarkable film. Let me tell you a little bit how the film comes about or came about. Every year in recent years, there has been a mass on the border between El Paso and Juarez. So the mass takes place between Mexico and the United States. There are three states represented, namely uh, Texas, um, uh, um, New Mexico, and then Chihuahua, and four dioceses. So El Paso, Las Cruces, and Juarez, or yeah, Juarez, and then uh, Nuevas Casas Grandes. And what happens is at the border, the, all, these, the four bishops come with representatives from their diocese. They set up two tables one on each side of a chain link fence. And so it's a continuous table separated by the fence. And they have mass bilingually, Spanish and English. And it's an absolutely beautiful experience. In recent years, however, they've had to move the mass around the corner closer to Las Cruces because the, link, the chain link fence that separated Texas with, from Mexico has become more of a, of a very uh, thick mesh fence. And so you can, you can barely see through it. So they had to move around the corner towards New Mexico where uh, that is still going. And for how much longer, we don't know because that border wall keeps growing and becomes higher and, and more opaque. Nevertheless, this mass has gone on once a year. Unfortunately, the last couple of years, because of COVID, it's been suspended. Hopefully this year, if we come out of COVID, it will happen again. But it's very, very moving. So the current voice I would like to use is another Holy Cross priest, Joe Corpora. Many of you may know him because he was at uh, uh, Blessed Holy Redeemer right here in, in Portland. But he went down, he was very, very moved, and so he wrote this in the Notre Dame ma magazine. He said, I could not stop staring at the fence and the altar on either side. Here we were gathered as one body of Christ divided into two. While the Eucharist speaks of our oneness in Christ, of the one bread and of the one cup, of inclusion, <clears throat> the fence speaks of the opposite, division and separation and exclusion. The mass begins in the usual way with an entrance procession, but it has to be adjusted given the wall separating the assembly. On both sides of the fence, cross bearers lead the procession, followed by the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the flags of both countries, and finally, items people carry when they try to cross, water, food, shoes, and a backpack. He continues, I don't know why, but when I saw the backpack and the shoes, I could not stop crying. The mass was bilingual with beautiful music. Someone read the first reading in Spanish from the Mexican side of the border. 
than someone read in English from the U.S. side. I was continually struck by the absurdity of borders. The one body of Christ divided into two. A most moving and pathetic thing happens at the kiss of peace. People on both sides put their fingers through the chain link fence to touch the fingers of their sisters and brothers on the other side. Father Corpora did the same, touching the fingers of another man. He continues, I cannot describe what I experienced at that moment. Perhaps the deepest longing I have ever known for justice, for peace, for unity, for acceptance. So again, this mass happens annually. It's well attended. People bring all kinds of festoons to decorate the fence. They, uh, they bring uh, crosses representing many of the people who have died in their attempt to cross into the US side. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite a moving experience. Again, I would really recommend if you have a chance to look up the film on Vimeo and, and watch it for yourself. I think, I think the picture speaks a, a thousand words. <clears throat> in terms of the mass, we have different names for it. Probably one of the most ancient names we find in Luke's gospel, where he speaks about it as the breaking of the bread. We find it, for example, in um, his Emmaus story. Remember, the two disciples are on their way to Emmaus, and they encounter Christ. They don't recognize him for one reason or another. And then they press upon him to stay for dinner. And it says, and while he was at table, he took the bread, said the blessing, and broke it and gave it to them. And it says, and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Actually, that's not quite accurate. The Greek says, kai klase autois in klase tu artu. It's not that they recognized him, but Christ was recognized by them. It's a kind of permissive tense. The Christ allows himself to be recognized in this simple gesture of breaking bread. Again, that expression, the breaking of the bread, the class tuartu, we find also in the uh, Acts of the Apostles. It speaks about the early Christians gathering, sharing their lives in common, and gathering for the breaking of the bread. So I think that that term is very much a Eucharistic term. We find it in the, uh, the Mass for Special Needs and Occasions, sometimes called the Swiss uh, Synod Prayer. And it talks about we recognize Christ as we break open the bread or break open the word and as we break bread together. Another term we use a lot is the term Eucharist and liturgia, Eucharistia and liturgia. Curiously, Eucharist is a term which we've come to recognize and we know that it means uh, Thanksgiving. And we know that it's primarily the action, the action of the community with the priest giving thanks. To God. Now, another word that was not in our, our vocabulary before the council is the word liturgia or liturgy. It's interesting. I have the Baltimore Catechism on uh, uh, in a digital form, and I did a word search, and I found the word Eucharist about a dozen times, and the word liturgy zero times. If anything, the most common word was the word mass. And it's also a word we still use today. And in a little bit, we're going to tease out what that might mean. But in general, it comes from the Latin, mito, mitere, misus, meaning to be sent. And so we want to explore what that means to be sent and how that's important, especially for social justice. So the verb is mito, mitere, misus is the past participle, and it means to send. And it's associated with the dismissal rite. I think it's interesting that we should call this whole ritual by the very last line. Ite misa est. Go. You are sent. But that must mean something that's very special. That the idea of being, being gathered to be nourished by the word of God and at the table of the Lord only to be sent back into the world. That we need to find that relationship between Eucharist and ethics. The expression then, ite misa est, First of all, it was not originally an ex a Christian expression, but it was a juridical expression that the Christians adopted. The question is, ite is to go, but misa is feminine. Misa, she is sent. Who's she? Well, all I can think is the she, whoops. 
All I can think is that she is the church, ecclesia, it's feminine. So go, the church is sent. And the people respond, thanks be to God, and they go. In 2005, there was a synod on the Eucharist. It had been convened by John Paul. John Paul passed away. And so Benedict, being the new sheriff in town, didn't really have to continue on with it. But since he had been involved in the planning, decided to move forward with the synod. The synod itself met for a matter of a couple of weeks. A number of people were appointed from Episcopal conferences. So bishops were appointed by their Episcopal conferences. Some people were invited because they had a certain expertise. And then there were other people, other people also were invited to attend. A friend of mine, Mark Francis, told me that no matter what you think about these, these are really hard going because everybody gets to talk for seven minutes and everybody prepares their text beforehand. And so it's very repetitive. It's so tedious that the Pope doesn't actually attend, but they're told that he can view it from his, his apartment by closed circuit television, but nobody really believes that's happening. Well, one day, two bishops from Oceania took the floor, one after the other, and they both said the same thing. They basically said that we've talked too much about the Eucharist as a meal. We should return to the idea of Eucharist as a sacrifice. And after the second bishop spoke for seven minutes, they heard somebody clear their throat. And in a heavy German-accented Italian, Benedict spoke to the, uh, to the group. And he said that in Catholic theology, it's never a matter of either or. But Catholic theology tries to hold in together in, into attention a number of things. And so it's not a matter of either meal or sacrifice, but it's meal and sacrifice and many, many other things together. Well, he spoke for 20 minutes. He could. He was the Pope. Afterwards, a huge sheath of minutes were sent to him. And um, in that, his task was to kind of go through all of this stuff and to crunch it down. And I have to say that for Benedict, that's his, his, great, his greatest strength. He is really a systematic theologian. And so he crunched this down into a document which is called the Sacrament of Love, the Sacramentum Caritatis. But this is one of the statements that was made in preparation for the bishops when they got there. Because when you invite bishops to a synod, you have to give them a working document. And the working document they call a lineamenta, or a, uh, just a working document. And so a lot of people from around the world were sending in suggestions. And from that, then they could, it was organized loosely so to give them uh, a chance to discuss different aspects. But this is one of the things that was in that working document. It says, the dismissal at Mass is an invitation to mission, supported by the Eucharist and relying on the example and the intercessions of the Virgin Mary, the church brings to fulfillment the mission of evangelizing today's world. The Eucharist has the goal of making us grow in the love of Christ and his desire to bring the gospel to everyone. So even that word mission is also from the Latin misus, you get missio. And so the very thing about dismissal is also tied to the idea of, of mission. So there's this ethical dimension. One of the people present was Bishop Skillstead from Washington State. He wrote, in his words and his actions, Christ has revealed to us the very heart of Eucharist. A very, the, very heart of, the very heart is mission. Through evangelization, through care for the poor, through the ministry of reconciliation and peace. In the Eucharist, Christ continues to wash our feet. With him, we continue to wash the feet of our brothers and sisters in our own communities and around the world. <clears throat> this is his example. This is his gift. This is our mission. So let's look at this idea of dismission, dismissal and mission. That the missionary mandate of the risen Lord that is given to his disciples in Matthew of go and make disciples is really represented and exemplified in the liturgy itself. And especially in that close where people are sent to, uh, to bring the good news to the world. And so what we're interested in is this community between God and humanity and how this is this representation of sacrificial love. 
One of my colleagues at Notre Dame is Gutierrez, Gustavo Gutierrez, the father of liberation theology. As you know, he's Peruvian, and um, uh, he, he's, his life has been threatened on many occasions. And so he took the opportunity to join the faculty at Notre Dame and has been there for about the last 10 years. He's not there for the full year, but he's there for a good part of it. And then at the age of, I think, 65, he decided to join the French province of Dominicans and he became a French Dominican. And uh, we had to go through the whole process, but he had done his studies in France. And so his French was very, very good. And it was also a way for him to find a safe harbor. But in his Theology of Liberation, he speaks about this relationship of Eucharist to life. He writes, the bond which unites God and man is celebrated that is effectively recalled and proclaimed in the Eucharist. Without a real commit commitment against exploitation and alienation and for society of solidarity and justice, the Eucharistic celebration is an empty action, lacking any genuine endorsement by those who participate in it. This is something that many Latin American Christians are feeling more and more deeply, and they are thus more demanding both with themselves and with the whole church. To make remembrance of Christ is more than the performance of an act of worship. It is to accept living under the sign of the cross and in the hope of the resurrection. It is to accept the meaning of a life that was given over to death at the hands of the powerful for the love of others. This is really the clarion call of Gutierrez to say that if we gather at the table to be nourished by the word and by the sacrament, it implicates us to go and change the world. And for him, that was part of his message of liberation. So let's talk about this idea of commissioning, that this is the task of all the baptized. I remember when I was in high school, the, college, the council had just finished. Our local uh, pastor gathered a group together for a parish council, and, uh, and I was invited as a high school student to join that. And I wasn't sure whatever I could do to help uh, in this matter. And in my own mind, I thought, well, basically, Father has to deal with all of, the, all of the spiritual affairs. We're there to help him with the temporal affairs. And so that's what we were there to do. And when I got to the meeting, he said, no, that's not it at all. That we're all in this together. That we all work for the temporal and the spiritual affairs of the parish. And that this was the task of all the baptized. This is one of the themes that was very, very strong at the Second Vatican Council, starting in Lumen Gentium, where it was really, it underscored the idea that all the baptized have a vocation, and all the baptized have a mission. So you have the vocation of being called, but if you're being called, it's being called to be sent on mission. But each, each person does it according to their own proper vocation, the proper gifts that are given to them. And so we don't confuse uh, the various uh, ministries of, for example, bishops, priests, and deacons, which we find in the very beginning of Lumen Gentium. But then it goes beyond that to tease out the, um, the mission of all of the baptized, and that all of us share in that, in that mission of Christ, who to teach, to, to govern, and to sanctify. So for a moment, what I'd like to speak about is rituals or the lack of ritual symmetry. About 15 years ago, Cardinal, Cardinal um, what's his name from, uh, from Brussels? Uh, it'll come to me in a second. I'm having a senior moment. He um, came to Notre Dame and he spoke about, um, he thought that there was a lack of ritual symmetry for the opening rites and the closing rites. He said, in the opening rites, we talk about these as being preparatory, but if they go beyond 15 minutes, that's more than preparation. That's a rite unto itself. And he said, if we've overloaded or front-loaded the opening rites, the closing rites, he thought, were too brief, and that people really didn't have a chance to, um, to accommodate, to absorb, to take in, uh, into themselves the mystery of the Eucharist. What's that? And so... For him, it was an occasion to, um, the closing rites should have more silence, a chance to, to take that mystery in. So he thought that the closing rites were too truncated, too abbreviated. 
It was too abrupt in its ending. There was no time to appropriate the mystery. In a way, he compared it to fast food, kind of a, a grab and go, if you will. So he thought that the closing rights were too spare, but he thought, well, if you're going to lengthen out the closing rights, we need to probably streamline the opening rights. But in, in this situation, he's asking for more ritual symmetry. So the question is, how to shape the closing rites in order to show that connection between liturgy and life, between Eucharist and social justice? So the questions we want to ask is, how do closing rites transition Christians back into the world and prepare them for their mission, which is truly theirs? And how does the Mass prepare the gathered assembly for mission? And how can the rites of commissioning underscore the many different engagements Christians have with the world? And finally, how can the closing rites be shaped as to form a seamless garment to avoid being truncated and kind of staccato, just very abrupt, a kind of a smooth transition so that we, we are we're closing up our Eucharistic liturgy and now we're transitioning back into the world. Now, the general instruction of the Roman Missal gives us the elements for the closing rites. There's only four. One, brief announcements if they're necessary. Most people say, oh, we don't need those. We have a bulletin. But maybe we do need an announcement, especially to underscore the mission of this parish. Two, the priest's greeting and blessings, which for certain days and occasions are enriched and expressed in the prayer over the people or another solemn formula. Next, the dismissal of the people by the deacon or priest so that each may go out to do good works, praising and blessing God. And finally, kissing of the altar by the priest and the deacon, followed by a profound bow to the altar by the priest, the deacon, and the other ministers. And the name has come back to me, Cardinal Daniels from Brussels. <laughs> this is what I call speaking the gap. You're talking, I'll be lecturing, the name doesn't come to me, and I'll say, oh, I'll come back to that. So I keep lecturing, the name comes back, and I, I shut out a name, and the students look at me, and I say, well, that's the name I was trying to think of before. So yeah, they always have to fill in the gap. Let's look at these four dimensions then. First, announcements. Well, oftentimes the announcements are very perfunctory and superfluous, especially since we have websites, we have bulletins. There are a lot of ways to convey what's going on in a parish rather than having to just read a long laundry list. But it seems if maybe one or two of the announcements are very carefully crafted, they can give an indication of how this particular parish is living the gospel. But it takes a little bit of work. And it might not just be a quick perfunctory announcement, but kind of gives the rationale for why we are doing what we are doing. The announcement should proclaim mission, the mission of this particular parish. Now let's move to the second, the blessings. Well, usually we have these solemn blessings and they're three-part, tripartite formula. And that these were borrowed from the ancient Gallican liturgy. And so um, after the Second Vatican Council, we find more and more blessings incorporated. Prior to that, it was just a simple uh, Trinitary blessing and the sending forth. And they're followed by three amens. And of course, as you know, the word amen means thus it is so. It's an affirmation of faith. And then that's followed at the end by the Trinitary blessing. But there's a ritual challenge here. And one is that oftentimes people don't know when to say amen. And so it just falls flat. Now, there's different ways we could cue the assembly. One would be a sung formula in which the people would, would respond with amen, amen. They would be given the clue because in the, uh, the, uh, the blessing, it would simply, the, the priest would just, would just sing rectotono at the end. He would go down, amen, amen. If the priest is not a singing priest, which is unfortunate, you could also have a verbal cue. Let the church say, or let us all say, but in some way to give the cue so that the amen is really meaningful. A part of the thing also at the end of Mass, I think, is to single out various ministries, both liturgical and non-liturgical. Now, we have extraordinary ministers of communion, and one of their big tasks is to bring communion to the sick, 
into the housebound. And in a way, their job is very, very, very important because they are the link between the community and the person who was unable to be there. Both of my parents were Eucharistic ministers. My father used to bring communion to uh, a classmate of his who had uh, multiple sclerosis. And my mother would bring communion to my grandmother. So I was home one weekend and my mother, I went to mass with my parents and they split up to go to the different places to bring communion. And I went with my mother. And right away, she wants to defer to me. You know, you're the priest, you do it. I said, no, I just, just wanna be present here. Just wanna see what you do. Well, it was really lovely. She read some of the readings. She kind of summarized in her own words what the homily was about. And then they prayed the Our Father. They prayed the, O oh Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. And then uh, my mother would give my grandmother communion. And then they would sit there for a long pregnant pause to meditate. And it was just very, very touching. And I realized that my mother was the link between the community and my grandmother who could no longer be there. But there's other ministries as well. There are other liturgical ministries like lectors, acolytes, greeters, uh, many, many ministries. And I'm thinking that this would be the part where we would commission people. It might be based upon the readings of the day. For example, soon we'll be talking about Jesus who goes into the temple and he reads the word. Well, this would be a great Sunday to focus on the ministry of lector and to commission lectors. Now, it was curious that after the council, most bishops of the world decided not to have the official commissioning of the different ministries, partially because it was only limited to men. And so they, they said they wouldn't do the official installations. But last year, Pope Francis has advocated that all people, all, all people who are, who are ministering would be, uh, it, would be admitted to the official, uh, the official ritual. And this, this would be, I would think, the proper time to do it, to, to uh, commission people. But I'm just thinking, going back to the Eucharistic ministers, what about calling them at the end of Mass? And they fill their pixels with the, the hosts they're bringing to the, to the housebound and the sick. And then everybody raises their hand over them and blesses them and says to them, take, take our love with you. Be present to that person. Let be the connection between that person and us. We could also have rituals for um, other, uh, other uh, ministries, non-liturgical ministries, like people who work with the homeless or soup kitchens or refugees. Now we have a book of blessings uh, in addition to the 20 or so blessings that are in the Roman Missal, but we have the book of Catholic blessings that certainly could be used. And if there's not a blessing which we can't find there, well, why don't we devise blessings based upon the, the format of how the blessings are, 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 are prayed and pray special blessings over all of these various ministries. So for I, I'm advocating that we need, we need more, ministry, more blessings because as we have more ministries, we'll need more blessings for them. Finally, what's missing? In that uh, list of, of the things that constitute the close, there's no recessional hymn. Now, this is always a hard sell. Most people, they'll go to the mat on this one. They say, we can't give up the closing song. I mean, how are we going to get farther down the aisle? But the thing is, it was the closing song really was not a part of the Roman uh, liturgy. The historical Roman rite had no closing song. So that the end, go, the mass is over, people would actually go. So how did we get the for him syndrome, the for him structure? Well, prior to the council, we had the low mass. And like I always say, the low mass was like a black dress. It was just looking for pearls. And where did we get our pearls? From Protestant worship. We borrowed the for him sandwich. And so even today, we're still working kind of off of that pattern, of an opening song, offertory, communion, and closing song. But I think the dismissal should be a true dismissal. If you say it's over, it's over. Is it, is, it, is it necessary? Well, maybe there's other ways to orchestrate the close. I mean, I think after communion, we do need kind of a, some kind of a hymn to draw us together, to draw the thing to a conclusion. But I'm wondering, is after the people are, after uh, the, the uh, ministers process to the back of the church, that from the back of the church, the priest says, now our mass is over, 
let us go in peace. Now, I have a number of priests who say, it's not a problem for me because my people don't stay for the closing song. And I said, well, whoops. I said, it's your, it's your fault. You told them it was over. They just took you literally. Maybe I'm just being a liturgical fundamentalist, but I think that you should say what you mean and mean what you say. But what we do now is we say, go, the mass has ended. But before you go, pick up your hymnal and we'll sing two verses to get farther down the aisle. So I would, I would suggest that we might anticipate the dismissal with a song. And then from the very back uh, is say, now we're over. Now the mass is over. Let us go. And people are really sent into the world. And when people say, thanks be to God, they really mean thanks be to God. And they don't mean thanks be to God. It's over. But thanks be to God. I can hardly wait to get back to my life, to get back to, to being a missionary. Some ways that this could be accomplished, I would think, would be with through composed music, so that the whole um, blessing and dis and, and pr re uh, procession out and then the final dismissal, dismissal, dismissal would be a part of a musical setting. That's just one idea. So it would hold together as a ritual unit and not seem as though it's fractured. Reverencing the altar. It's interesting that... Um, <clears throat> I used to direct the choir in Helena for a number of years, and I had my ringers, my non-Catholic singers, and one person after many years singing, she, she asked me one time, she said, why at the beginning and at the end of, uh, end of mass does the priest bump his head on the altar? And I said, what are you talking about? She says, well, that's what he's doing, isn't it? And I says, no, no, he's kissing the altar. Well, I put myself where she was seated, and it looked like the priest was bumping his head. So she had this elaborate theology of head bumping. But in a sense, she says, well, why is the priest kissing, kissing the altar? Well, I said, because the altar is the symbol of Christ. And so I showed her in the rite of dedication of churches, the rite of consecration of altars with chrism. And so the altar is literally Christed with chrism. It becomes the anointed one. And so the altar becomes a symbol of Christ. And that's why during the liturgy, our focus is really on the altar. So when we pass in front of it, we reverence it. The priest kisses it at the beginning and at the end, and the altar holds a very, very special place. It's not there simply to hold plants. In fact, it shouldn't be cluttered. It should be left simple to speak in all of its fullness. In the Maronite rite, there is a prayer that the priest says to the altar at the end. It's almost like a love poem. I mean, every time I hear it, I just melt. It's so beautiful. Here it is. I leave you in peace, O holy altar. And I hope to return to you in peace. May the offering I have received from you be for the forgiveness of my faults and the remission of my sins, that I may stand without shame or fear before the throne of Christ. I do not know if I shall be able to return to you again to offer another sacrifice. I leave you in peace. Isn't that beautiful? The way the altar is, is personified, the personification of Christ. So we speak then about Sunday as the Lord's Day and a day of mission. It's a day of solidarity and sharing with the poor. It's a day to show our bond of fellowship, our source of communion. And so Sunday is a day that we are prepared for mission. And we're prepared at the Eucharist. We say that the Eucharist is a source and the summit, but as a source and the summit, it's also our starting point. So what I'd like to end with now are four voices. Or five, yeah, no, five voices actually. Two from the early church, two patristic voices, and three from our our recent popes. The first one is from Saint John Chrysostom, representing the East. Saint John Chrysostom, the name Chrysostom means the golden mouth. Apparently, he had a lot of dental work. No, apparently, he was a great preacher, and he was known for his his preaching abilities. But John was also known for all of the social things he did, schools hospitals, orphanages. And for him, these would be called liturgies because they are public works. And that's what the word liturgy means. It's a public work. And so for him, caring for the poor, caring for the uh, orphans, caring for widows, caring for the sick was a kind of liturgy. And so he writes, do you wish to honor the body of Christ? Do not ignore him when he is naked. Do not pay homage in the temple clad in silk, 
only then to neglect him outside where he suffers and uh, suffers poverty and nakedness. He who said, this is my body, is the same one who said, you saw me hungry and you gave me no food. And whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did also for me. What good is it if the Eucharistic table is overloaded with golden chalices when he is dying of hunger? Start by satisfying his hunger, and then with what, you le- what, with what is left, you may adorn the altar as well. The temple of our afflicted neighbor's body is more holy than the altar of stone on which you celebrate the holy sacrifice. You are able to contemplate this altar everywhere, in the street and in the open squares. I think Karl Rahner understood this when he spoke about the liturgy of the world. The liturgy doesn't stop at the doors of the church. But liturgy then is carried out into the world. And that the liturgy that John Chrysostom would speak about is that public work that we find in the Beatitudes. Second patristic voice is from the West, St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. And he was very keen on saying that we are to become that which we celebrate, that we are to become bread broken, we are to become wine poured out. He writes, if you are the body and members of Christ, then it is your sacrament that is placed on the table of the Lord. It is your sacrament that you receive to that which you, which respond, amen, which means, yes, it is true. And by responding to it, you assent to it. For you hear the words, the body of Christ, and you respond, amen. Be then a member of the body of Christ, that your amen may be true. Curiously, when we come to communion, the Eucharistic minister says the body of Christ, and we say, Amen. What are we affirming? Why do we tell the Eucharistic minister not to say, this is the body of Christ? Or Michael received the body of Christ. Why is it simply body of Christ? In the same way that we told deacons who after the council, after the gospel, they would lift up the gospel book and they would say, this is the word of the Lord. And we said, no, you don't say this is the word of the Lord. Just the word of the Lord because the word of the Lord is not only the word that was written, written down, but it's the dynamic word. It's Christ in our midst. In the same way, we just say, body of Christ, and the person says, amen. So to what are they affirming? Well, I think they're affirming that they believe that Christ is present in the Eucharistic elements of bread and wine, but they also believe that Christ is present in them, and they believe that Christ is present in this assembly of people, and they believe that Christ is present in the entire church. And so that amen is a very pregnant amen, where they're affirming many, many things by that simple acclamation. What they're saying is that they are becoming, or we are becoming, that which we celebrate. We are becoming Eucharist. Eucharist then isn't just what's on the table. Eucharist is who's at the table. We are Eucharist. Finally, the recent papal voices. This one is from John Paul. This was his Holy Thursday declaration in which he was kind of reiterating classical Catholic Eucharistic theology. But he says the Eucharist not only provides the interior strength needed for this mission, but it is also in some sense its plan. For the Eucharist is a mode of being which passes from Jesus into each Christian through whose testimony it is meant to spread throughout society and culture. I like that idea that Eucharist is the plan by which we are formed into the body of Christ. Then Benedict, in his post-synodal um, letter, uh, Sacramentum Caritatis, so the, the uh, sacrament of, of, of love, writes, he's, he's reflecting on the Our Father. And he says, give us this day our daily bread, obliges us to do everything possible in cooperation with international, state, and private institutions, to end or at least reduce the scandal of hunger and malnutrition. The Christian lady formed at the school of the Eucharist. I love that expression, formed at the school of the Eucharist. The Eucharist schools us for action. They are called to assume their specific political and social responsibilities. What this tells me is that the Eucharist implicates us. It implicates us for service. It's in the Eucharist that we are really missioned. And finally, Pope Francis, that the church urgently needs the deep breath of prayer, and to my great joy, groups devoted to prayer and intercession, the prayerful readings of God, prayerful reading of God's word, 
and the perpetual adoration of the Eucharist are growing at every level of ecclesial life. But even so, this is where he puts us on guard. He says, we must reject the temptation to offer a privatized and individualistic spirituality, which ill accords with the demands of charity to say nothing of the implications of the incarnation. So we can't use devotions to get us off the hook for doing what we're, what we're called to do, especially regarding social justice. So again, this is in his Joy to the Gospel, his first encyclical that he actually penned. He says, there is always the risk that some moments of prayer can become an excuse for not offering one's life in mission. A privatized lifestyle can lead Christians to take refuge in some false forms of spirituality. So he takes very seriously that the Eucharist calls us to service. The Eucharist forms us for service. And in the Eucharist, we are sent forth to love and to serve the Lord. Finally, we read, and again on the Synod on the Eucharist, the Eucharist has always empowered the choices and the ethical and moral behavior of believers, affecting philosophy, art, literature, and even civil and legal institutions, thereby contributing to fashioning the features of an entire civilization in personal and family life, as well as in cultural, political, and social life. The Eucharist moves Christians to a commitment of justice in today's world. So the final words here are, ite misa est, to which you say, Deo gracias. Great. Um, so I am a disembodied voice off to the side reading a question that wound up uh, in the Q&A section. Thank you, Michael. I very much agree that the Eucharist should be a school where we are formed into an ethical community that loves as Christ loved. However, I wonder how this formation can happen when there's such disagreement on what it means to love as Christ loved. We have Catholic parishes that are so radically different in their ethics and political worldviews. For instance, we differ on issues of immigration, sexual ethics, economics, environmentalism, and many others. Is the liturgy really forming us or are we simply choosing parishes that confirm our values? Put differently, how do we stop our liturgies from becoming echo chambers where we really worship ourselves? So thank you, Dave, for the question. It's a hard answer, but I think um, I'm just thinking back to the Pew uh, study of American Catholic life where they said that we are never so uh, segregated as Sunday morning, that we are very much locked into closed communities. And so there is that tendency of, of um, being in, a, in a, uh, an echo chamber. But I applaud parishes that take seriously social gospel and have uh, soup kitchens or pantries or deal with the care of the poor, that they, that they, are, they model for us, I think, uh, what, um, what all of these voices are saying. And so the challenge is always there. I don't know that we fully realize that. And I agree that at times there are some parishes which, which really step up to the plate much better than others. And to them, we need to look for guidance. But we also look to the teachings of the church that try to help us see that the Eucharist cannot be something which is privatized, but something which is uh, the gathering of the people being, being formed at the Eucharist only to be sent out. So much more, I think, can be written and said about this idea of Eucharist and ethics. I don't know if I fully answered your question because I don't know that there is a, an easy, easy answer because I think it, it does delve into the, the ecclesial differences that we find, especially today, where we're, so, we're divided as much within the church as we are in society at large. There's another one here. Uh, thank you so much. Okay, I have a question, and that is, uh, in the American church especially, we've been hearing a lot about Eucharistic coherence. At the beginning of your talk, you used the phrase something like fruitful tensions, and tensions are often opposite ends of the spectrum. If you were to counsel um, people who have heavy hearts about where we are in, in the whole mess of Eucharistic coherence, what do you think are the fruitful elements of tension that, that we could get okay with, with coexisting with? 
Okay, well, one of the things I think if we can move out of this kind of uh, super privatistic uh, devotional attitude, mm -hmm. that that I think is very, very difficult. I think also um, um, the tensions, I think we, we need to avoid binary opposition. It's either this or that. In often cases, it's many things that we're juggling to hold together. So that's why even as Francis is saying, I like the fact that people are getting together for prayer and devotions, but it doesn't dispense them from taking on the social thing. So all of these things are always held in tension. And once we start saying, well, it's either this or that, I think that's when we're off track. That's just not the way, the Catholic way of thinking. We're a both and people. Both and, and, and. Okay. Many things. There was an agreement with Dave's um, assertion. So I'm going to leave that and go to, I think, probably our last question for the evening. Charity and justice differ a bit. How do you see the link between Eucharist and the effort to change unjust systems such as racism, housing, climate change, et cetera, poverty? Right. Well, one of the things I would actually encourage you to, uh, to look at the film that Dan Grudy put together. And in which you have some of the some of the, uh, the hierarchy speaking about our response, especially to immigrants, and that as as uh, as as churches, we will never turn our backs on people. We will never uh, we will never not offer uh, uh, assistance. We're not advocating that we go against the law, but at the same time, uh, we will not be uh, uh, we will not turn our back on on our mission. And that is to take care of the poor, take care of the immigrant. That's just one aspect, but I'm sure there's many ways. Well, an, an anonymous attendee gives me the perfect um, segue to, to bring to tonight to a conclusion. Our bruised, blessed world definitely groans for inclusion and justice. And I thank Father Driscoll for shining a light on how the Eucharist and those who gather at its table can be agents of making that happen and living in that fruitful tension that he talked about. Um, if you would like to review the whole talk or parts of it, um, check out the Garavena Center website in a couple of days. Uh, our website is pretty simple, up.edu slash Garaventa. And another thing that we will do is put a direct link to Dan Grudy's video that Father Driscoll referenced in his, um, in his comments. So that'll, that'll take us a couple of days to get uh, the, the video edited and captioned and therefore accessible. So I would say Monday or Tuesday of next week, we'll have that ready for you. Um, so it just remains to me to thank Father uh, Michael Driscoll again, and to wish all of you good night, good day, and peace be with you. Thank you for being with us tonight. <laughs>